Welcome to Stewardology, a podcast where two worlds collide. In this show, financial advisor Tim Russell and Reverend Drew Geisey come together to explore the intersection of financial stewardship and theology. Their unique perspectives help Christians and churches understand and apply a biblical framework for everyday financial decisions so Christians everywhere can improve and strengthen their walk with Christ through biblical stewardship. Before we get started, we just wanted you to know that the topics discussed in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific investment advice or recommendations. Investing and investment strategies involve risk, including the potential loss of principal. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. Securities and advisory services are offered through Genios Wealth Management, member FINRA and CIPIC. Without further ado, here are your hosts, Tim Russell and Drew Geisey. I'm Tim Russell. And I'm Pastor Drew Geisey. And we welcome you to episode 92 of the, the Stewardology Podcast. Well, Tim, I'd like to take a few minutes in our opening of this episode and think about the parable of the talents found in Matthew 25. And I know, as we have talked uh, here on the podcast and also offline, that this is one of your favorite parables, as it is mine also. As we know in Scripture, there is one meaning, but multiple applications that we see in Scripture. Uh, In one or two sentences, Tim, why don't you summarize this parable? Yeah, well, you know, Jesus did not teach the parable of the talents to teach us about investing. (laughs) He wasn't trying to give us hot stock tips and investment advice. And, you know, I I, want to recognize that, and you you alluded to it. Um, But what Jesus was pointing at here does have some implications to how we think about risk. And I think that's really important for us to, to come to this this passage, as far as our a takeaway, one of the one of the many numerous takeaways we can take away from this this parable would be our view of risk matters. So here's the thing: <clears throat> we've got a a master who has three servants. He gives differing amounts of resources to each one of his servants, and then he goes off to a far country. The first two take the funds that were entrusted to them take risk with that money, the risk is paid off, and those funds are doubled. The last servant does something entirely different. Now, when the master returns, he inspects the resources that were entrusted, and the first two that doubled their funds were rewarded and given more responsibility. The last one was called before the master and said, okay, show me what you did with what I gave you. And of course, the, the the servant starts fumbling and muttering, and 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 in fear says, "Well, here, I, I just dug it out of the backyard. Here's the talent that you gave me. I, I knew you were a stern master. You gathered where you did not sow, and you harvested where you did not. You reap where you did not. Um, you know, plant and and I didn't want to lose your money, so I, I wanted to stay in your good graces. So here, here is the money that you gave me." Here is that resource. And rather than saying, hey, boy, way to go. You understand me so well. You you get me, buddy. You, you just understand that I really, I care about this money. And I don't want it lost. Way to go for not losing that money. That's not what the master says. The master goes, you wicked and lazy servant. Ouch. Wicked and lazy? 
You knew that I gathered where I did not sow and did all of these things. You knew that I expect excellence. You should have at least put it in the bank so I would have at least had interest Mm -hmm. on that money. So here's some of the takeaway, right? That, that, That there... There is a certain amount of return on investment that the master expected. That that understanding risk is important, but avoiding risk just for the sake of fear is the wrong outcome. It's the wrong response. So I think one of the lessons we take away from this parable is we need to make prudent risk. We need to take prudent risk. Prudent risk doesn't mean burying it in the backyard. Right. It doesn't mean um, it doesn't mean that we forget about risk or don't consider it. But it means that we should actually do the thing that is reasonable and right in order to steward well the resources entrusted to us. So one of the things that I think is an interesting mental exercise is to ask yourself. Those two servants both took risk. The risk paid off. They doubled it. What would have happened if the master came back and one of the servants went out, took the risk, and the monies were lost or were less than originally entrusted? I've, I've to thought about that through the years myself. And, and the the answer that we have is that obviously scripture doesn't tell us directly. No, However, no. I, I believe based on a few other principles we see in scripture, that likely what would have happened would have been that that servant who lost those funds or had those funds diminished in some way would have been less harshly treated Correct. by the master than the servant who took no risk at all. I agree. Because what was the condemnation to that third steward? Lazy, mm-hmm. slothful servant. Yeah. You did not truly recognize that I expect you to take prudent risk with what I entrust to you. Again, Jesus is not trying to teach us investment advice. I think this is just simply one of those applications that we can draw out of this passage. Well, that was well said. So for myself being a pastor for almost 30 years, I've processed this upcoming question that we're going to be dialoguing about in this episode many, many times. And I have my own ideas of an answer. And here's the question. Can and should churches have that have a surplus of funds above their weekly, monthly needs, Should they invest that money for the purpose of seeing growth as a good steward of the Lord's money? So that's kind of like the big picture question that I'd like us to kind of tackle today, but we're going to be breaking that out as we go through this episode. And now everyday investors, such as you and I and those that are listening, we're able to open up investment accounts rather quickly in today's day of age, get on your phone or whatever and do that. But what about churches? Can churches invest in the stock market? Are they able to have investment accounts? Also, beyond if they can or cannot is a huge question. If it is ethical, wise, or financially uh, responsible for a church to have these types of accounts, these are some of the questions that it would be good to 
kind of dialogue about and address because I know in my years of ministry, there are some people that are all for it and some people that recoil big time on it. So if I'm going to summarize the question, it's can churches invest? Drew, the spoiler alert here is yes. Should they invest? That's an interesting question. And that's what we're going to be tackling today. We'll dive into that. Yeah, Yeah, we're going to tackle that. So that's what I want us to look at today. So let's jump in here, Tim. You being a financial advisor, you get this stuff. Let's start off. What is an investment account? When you open an account at the bank, you put cash in an account, right? And, And those funds receive a modest, if any, interest, right? There's just a small amount of money that comes back. There's no risk. There's no stock market risk. There's no volatility. That is technically not viewed as an investment. I would agree. Well, the, the government defines what an investment is, and it doesn't meet the definition, the government definition of an investment. Now, an investment is something where risk is involved. It involves what's called a security. So this is like a stock, a bond, a mutual fund, where we are investing money, we're taking money, we're giving it to a company, and they are giving us rights and privileges, rights of ownership, privileges of receiving dividend payments, and and so forth and so on. So an investment account is where we're actually taking money. We're not leaving it at a bank. We're actually taking that money and we're buying parts of or we're lending money to a company. So we can do that through stocks, bonds, mutual funds, and there are a few other variants. You can take a look at the investment vehicles episode we did not too long ago. Yeah. So there's another term that I've heard through the years, and I know since working here, is a brokerage account. Uh-huh. Tim, what is that? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, well, um, it's a particular kind of investment account Ooh, held us in. at a brokerage house. Uh, I, I don't want to get too far into the weeds, but if you're going to own stocks, bonds, things like that, you, you generally need to have a middleman, a custodian that will allow you to hold that stock and or bond. So if you own a piece of a company, who, where's that money going to be? Or as far as your ability to track how much it's worth, uh, like if you buy shares in, in AT&T, you can't go to the AT&T website and see how much all of your shares are. Obviously AT&T will probably have an investor section, which show the share price, but you can't log in and actually see all of your shares. Okay. So in order to do that, there's a central company, a broker, who will hold those shares for you. And you can not only own AT&T, you could also own Walmart and you know all of the other companies. You could hold them in one central account, hold multiple companies inside that account in either mutual funds or stocks, bonds, things like that. So a brokerage account is a generic basket that allows you to hold a wide variety of different assets. So one thing here is you have to recognize that when you buy a mutual fund, Mm -hmm. so American funds, Vanguard, wherever, you can go directly to those companies and I can open up an account direct through American funds, Vanguard, Fidelity, Schwab, whatever. Um, And 
I would own their their mutual funds. I, I generally there are some exceptions, uh, but I generally can't own other like I can't have a Franklin Templeton mutual fund in my American funds account, right? Because they're two different companies. Okay. A brokerage account will let you hold all of the different companies in one account. So it's generic. So it lets you hold all of them. So an investment account is a general term. A brokerage account is a very broad basket that allows you to hold a wide variety of different assets. Now, I think you already answered this in our opening, but I'm going to ask it again. Now, I know that you and I can open these types of accounts, but what about churches? Are they able to open investment or brokerage accounts? Uh, Sure, of course they can. They are an entity. Any entity can open an account, an individual, a trust, a business, a church would legally be allowed to open an investment account. They have to provide all of the requirements, the paperwork to be able to verify that they are a legitimate organization, to verify their tax exempt status, to verify their current owners and who's authorized to transact on that account on behalf of the church. But yeah, okay, they would be able to do that provided they jump through all the hoops. In my years of ministry... In the church, there's this question that is that gray area or that elephant in the room when a church has extra funds, and the question is this, should the church open these types of accounts? Should the church open an investment slash brokerage account? Should they be involved in this? And this is the gray area, and I want to banter back and forth and process this with you, Tim. So the answer to that question is very much going to be informed by which side of another decision you land on. Uh, actually, it's a multi, multifaceted it is. Um, piece. So one of the questions is, what is your eschatology? No, don't worry. I'm not going to get into end times views. No, I will instead. Let me. Well, let me. no, no, no. My, my point, my point is, is, is not to say that we're going to go digging through the book of Revelation. But here's here's some of some of the realities that various end times views have actually had very practical application to how the church views its money. Explain that. That I, I like where you're going. I'm, I'm intrigued by that. So. Bear with me as I share with you a little bit of church history. In the early 1900s, actually starting in the 1800s, but there was the the growth and development of dispensational theology. Don't worry about the terms. What you need to know is this was a a basic way of understanding the Bible that approached with a very literal interpretation of you know the 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 book of Revelation says this, therefore this is going to happen. So they approach it with a form of literalism, and they approach it with an understanding that these events are sure to take place very, very soon. There's a lot about that that we respect, that there's good Mm -hmm. in that. In fact, what they were doing was reacting in part against a trend that was happening among all mainline denominations where there was a falling away of many of the mainline denominations into what's called liberalism, where they denied the, the, the godness of the Bible, the godness of Christianity, the miraculous way that God 
deals with mankind. They would basically deny the virgin birth or the miracles or the, the atoning work of Jesus Christ. They would water down the gospel. They stopped being Christian. Mm-hmm. And these group of believers who were very deeply concerned about an understanding of who God is and reading the Bible, at it, like taking God at his word as they read the Bible, praise Jesus for that approach. They also were were um, very much moved by an end times uh, framework, which said, "Look, Jesus Christ is coming back very, very soon." I'm, again, that's good. We need to have that that imminentness yes. of the the return of Jesus Christ. But what that did, unintended consequences. The unintended consequence of that was that their focus was not on creating churches buildings and structures, I'm thinking, that are designed to last centuries. They built quick, easy, plain buildings that were not built to last. Mm -hmm. You can compare the cathedrals in Europe with the, 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 the fact that these churches were designed to last centuries. Clearly. And, and now the, the churches are generally not. And, and then there's also an, a huge push towards evangelism and missions. Praise Jesus. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. And what they did is they recognized Jesus is coming back. He's coming back probably tomorrow. I get money in my hands. I have to get it in the fields as soon as possible because I need to evangelize the world. So there was a, a healthy and unhealthy elements of this, right? There's, there's obedience to Christ and there's an understanding of the urgency of the gospel mission and of missions work. So they spent as little as possible on buildings and structures, Mm -hmm. and they would take as much money as they could, and they run it out into the mission field and into evangelism and works like that without a long-term perspective. Mm -hmm. So what happened is that many of these pastors would not save and prepare for the future because Jesus was coming back. Right, They would not plan on retirement because they weren't going to make it to retirement. Jesus was going to be coming back and they were going to get raptured and everything was going to be okay. I am not throwing shade on, on this theology in and of itself. I'm simply pointing out that while this theology had very good and healthy corrective measures on the evil influences of the day within sure. within religion. Yeah. There were, as with every theological movement, unintended negative consequences in their view of money. So they had they had a very short term myoptic focus of things where and they totally threw out the long term uh need in processing that there may be a greater need 30 years from now, 50 yeah, years from now. Yeah. But everything was like, now, 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 empty the pockets, mm-hmm. let's get people into the kingdom now, which I like that mentality, I like that mindset, Absolutely. I think you do also. Absolutely, I am for it, yeah. yeah. So, and, and, and you know, th- to throw fuel on the fire, part of all of this, this like end times fervor got 
really amped up with the discussions about creating a state for Israel after World War II and bringing the Holocaust victims and repatriating them back into Palestine, creating the nation of Israel. And then you saw that seven-day war and the amazing work of God in saving the nation of Israel. It's, you know, and, and so even with all of that gave even more impetus to the it's going to happen any day now. Jesus sure. is coming back. The end times, everything is lining up to happen now. There's such a now focus that there wasn't a long-term focus. Mm-hmm. There wasn't a view that, well, God may or may not come back right away. So how do we deal with it? So here's here's why all of that background matters on this question. In the church today, there are... Uh, there's a view that's still very short-term oriented and that the the single largest priority for the church is to get dollars into ministry and programming. So the question, should they invest? The answer is absolutely in the kingdom. Correct. And they should put their dollars into programming and into missions works because that is absolutely the only thing that matters. Be- besides, you could take money, you could put money to work in the market, and it could go down in value, and then you'd have less money to put into practice, put Correct. into programming. Yep. So that is one way of thinking. So if that is where you are, the answer is clearly no, you should not invest in the stock market. You should put all money into programming. However, on the other side of the spectrum, there is the view that t- takes a long approach to recognize that we don't know when the Lord's coming back, and we are thinking about not just our programming today, but our programming on into the future. How do we continue a self-propagating, supporting ministry from for the next decade, next century, the next millennia? Yeah. So thinking long-term about those, you would obviously think investing may be a very valid way of approaching that challenge. So where do we land on this? I think the reality is we're somewhere in the middle, that, that the Bible teaches that we need to have an urgency when it comes to the recognition of getting boots on the ground and helping people, helping the lost see Christ. However, we also have many scriptures that talk about looking ahead and foreseeing a danger and preparing ourselves and having a long-term approach because the Lord may tarry. We have to be faithful both today if he comes back and for tomorrow if he does not come back in our lifetime. Tim, I like how you bookended that. I think that was very, very well done. And to give that little bit of history, especially bringing it into the modern days. And it's not a black and white answer. Should churches open these types of accounts? Um, There's people that sit in the pew and they're like, the market is evil. We don't know where the money's going to invest in. We can't can't put $100,000 in there and turn around and have it be $80,000 at the end of the year. Mm-hmm. We can't yeah. afford that. And yeah. that's not good stewardship. But then again, others are thinking, well, let's put the $100,000 in and maybe we could get more. Like I will <laughs> put put something, my one ministry I was involved in, we were doing an entire worship center renovation. We knew we were coming up to it. We had roughly quarter million, a little less than a quarter million dollars. And we took it 
and we agreed as as a leadership. We put it into the market, and about eighteen to twenty months later, that grew forty two thousand five hundred dollars. It cost us forty thousand dollars for chairs for our worship center in our wow. renovation. Yeah, God provided all those chairs through that little bit of time to be able to take care of it. So some people look at that and there's like genius, great move. Well, you're a genius when it goes up, but then you're not a good pastor or church leader when it goes down. Absolutely. And that yeah. becomes the thrust. Mm-hmm. And should churches open these types of accounts? It becomes a matter of wisdom. Yeah. It absolutely becomes a matter of wisdom. So when we think about investing. It ultimately comes down to your view and your understanding of of what God teaches us about money. Money is a resource, yes. a talent, so to speak, yes. that we are to use for God's purposes. So that means, yes, getting it into programming, and yes, planning and preparing for the future. So if you view investing like Wall Street is gambling in some way, you would be right to be concerned. If that was your understanding, you'd be right to be concerned about the investing in the stock market. If you don't understand it, if you think it's gambling, then yeah, don't don't go there uh, because it would be a violation of your faith. So a church would need to have wisdom to know whether or not they can shepherd their people through this transition to have the right understanding of investing, not as a get-rich-quick scheme, but as a way of putting those resources to work for the future. If you can shepherd your people, then you should absolutely consider investing if that's an option the Lord has given you. Right, right. So another question that I'm processing that ties in with this previous question, is there something potentially ethically wrong or even challenging about church funds being in the market? What are some thoughts as a financial advisor? Yes. The answer is yes. There can be ethical dilemmas with investing. So let's talk about a few. Yeah. The first ethical dilemma might be the the shepherding dilemma. Mm. You have a a church, you're in the middle of, of the country, and you've got a lot of farmers who don't they're, they're not investors. They don't understand it. Forcing through some kind of an investment strategy to a church like that without yeah. the proper amount of shepherding and preparing, teaching and training would be um, a poor stewardship of the flock that you've been entrusted. Right there with you. Correct. So use some wisdom in how it's approached. Secondly, if you approach investing like a get-rich-quick scheme, and you're investing in things that are high risk in order to be able to have that hope of, you know, putting on that mansion parsonage that right. you were hoping to be able to get, Pastor. Yeah, sure. that would be a problem. Mm-hmm. Of course, you know, there's no pastors hoping for a mansion. Well, I don't know about no pastor. <laughs> no Christian pastor is yeah. uh, is looking for a mansion parsonage. Uh, so, you know, what's your purpose? What do you want it to accomplish for you? Is it get rich quick or is it to keep pace with inflation and to put God's work, God's money to work so that you can you can be able to do what you need to do if you have that long-term perspective? The third potential ethical dilemma actually deals with what you invest in. So are you investing in tobacco, alcohol, casinos, pornography, and abortion? If 
if you're putting God's money to work and you're profiting from things that are clearly uh, violations of the of a biblical worldview, uh, well, does that make God happy? Especially if this is church money, you know? Right. That is an ethical dilemma that a church will need to work through. So using biblically responsible investments may be a wise move. The final, the fourth thing I would say is a potential ethical challenge would be, what is your time frame? Mm, because if, glad if you bring that up, you know, if you're thinking I'm going to be buying a church property, I'm a plant, I'm going to buy a property and I'm going to do it in five years. Yeah. Don't invest in the market. That would be foolish. Mm-hmm. There's just too many chances. Things could go south in five years and then you'll have less money to buy that church property when the time comes mm-hmm. because you know, church properties generally don't go on the market until the market's really bad and people aren't giving and churches tend to fold. You know, so right. the very time you need the money is the very time the money's not there for you to use. Yeah. So, Let's let's turn to this. I'm pastoring a church, and the church that I'm pastoring, they want to invest their extra funds. And now we're choosing to do this. Would you, as a financial advisor, treat and or service these funds differently than you would like a regular investor coming in and off the street? And if so, what would you do different, Tim? Yes, I would treat it differently. I would treat it differently in a sense. When I deal with a family, there are one to two decision makers. Okay. And I work directly with them. And I, I also have a very clear goal in mind. We're working towards retirement or towards college savings or towards whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and in working with these two and trying to understand their risk tolerances and goals, I'm able to craft a plan that helps them navigate through the waters ahead. When you enter into a church scenario, you're dealing with a volunteer organization full of volunteers, right? I, so you're dealing with a board and a deacon or elder board or a stewardship board or an investment committee. These folks are not professional investors. They are volunteers, and their role is transient. By that, I mean people come and people go. Correct. They'll be on that board for a year or two, and then they'll shift off that board, and now you have to go through the process of retraining a new new group. So the very nature of the type of organization you're working with makes your approach to that that organization different. So I get you about the approach, and that makes total sense, Tim, uh, because been there, lived in that world. But what about you as a financial advisor? We've taken care of the approach. The check is here. Put it into our brokerage account. Tim, we want you to shepherd this money for us for the next five to seven years for our building fund. Tim, what would you do differently than you would for me personally? Yeah, I, in terms of how the money is managed, probably not a, not an awful lot. Um, based, we focus on your time frame. So it, it's really just a person with a shorter time frame. 
Okay. So I would probably take a little less risk if I know I only had five to seven years versus someone who has 20 years until retirement. And then the other factor is how quickly are you going to need those funds? Here's an example. Mm -hmm. For someone in retirement, so they are saving up, let's just hypothetically say, a million dollars for retirement. When they retire, they're not taking that full $1 million and closing it out that day they retire and taking the cash and then living on it. They're going to take an income out of that account for the next number of years. So I treat that and invest it differently than I would for someone who has a fund that they're growing and then going to take all those funds and then buy a house with it. Yeah. Right. That is a different scenario. Risk is different if if it's a lump sum withdrawal. And for churches, for many churches in the scenario, you're going out and buying a church building or having a major capital campaign, Sure, it's the same story. I, I have to take that risk more seriously, not that I don't take it seriously, uh, but you know, recognize the impact of risk on the planning outcomes it could be more dire than for an individual who's simply planning on starting a withdrawal. Like I can, there are ways to mitigate that risk by having cash on hand and other things like that. But if you need the entire corpus of that account to purchase something, we have a problem. So we have to address that differently. Well said. And I was, I was hoping you would go down that path. Let me bring up another piece here. What about something of the neighborhood? We've talked about this in some previous episodes, our BRI model and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, talk to us about, I'm not saying exact mutual funds and investment pieces that you're going to do, but how would you satisfy a church or board with the actual investment itself? In terms of what would I invest that in? I'm not looking for the specifics, but what would be some parameters that you would put in place? Because now I'm part of the yeah, board. Yeah. I need to be responsible to our congregation. I'm the pastor. So I let me, let me sure give you a couple, well. couple points. Uh, there have been a few things that I've done in terms of managing monies for a church. Three different options. One is a low-risk church. We've got a, a short time frame. I want better interest than the bank. I would use something like a bond or CD ladder because I know that there's a short period of time where we have a the funds need to be fully available and ready. I actually did this with a township where we had a couple million dollars and we kept it very short in all FDIC insured CDs because the government requirements for how funds were managed for a government entity actually says the only thing you can use is FDIC insured investment. Interesting. Vehicles. Didn't yeah. know that. So we had to buy CDs. Gotcha. So, you know, whether it's a church or an organization like that with an ultra low, low risk and a very clear time frame. Mm -hmm. We didn't take any investment risk with that. Okay. Um, I have other organizations where we'll be somewhere in the middle of the road and we don't have a ton of money, but we're going to be putting money away as we go and we'll be in the middle of the road in terms of a balanced fund or a, a, a kind of a, a balanced approach to managing stocks and bonds. If I have more funds to work with, and I've done this multiple times, I'll actually use a biblically responsible investment model, probably somewhere in the balanced range depends on how conservative or a risky risk oriented they are and it also depends on what kind of time frame we're talking about right but yeah we can use something like that which is a, a wide group of funds that has the opportunity for growth as well as a way of managing risk so just so our listening audience understands this you use this you use this term a few times 
balanced fund. What does balanced mean? So can, can you picture in your mind's eye a ladder? And if you're standing on the ground next to that ladder, how high can you reach? Well, not just as high as you are. Well, okay, now, now picture yourself standing on the bottom rung of that ladder. How much higher can you reach now? Just, just a couple inches, maybe not, not a tremendous, a lot. <laughs> I, I probably could have jumped in and, and done better than that. Okay. But what's the risk if you fall off that ladder at that point on the bottom rung? Well, not a lot. I mean, you might sprain an ankle, sure. but you're not going to die. Okay. Well now picture yourself standing on the very tippity top rung. Mm-hmm. How high can you reach now? Whoa. I mean, I mean, I can get the highest gutters. I, I'm way, mm-hmm. way up there. What happens if a gust comes yeah, really. <laughs> and blows and you fall down, you fall off that ladder? Well, you're going to break a neck. It could be a fatal accident. Sure. I look at a ladder like the relationship between risk and return. And when, when I refer to a balanced portfolio or a balanced oriented fund, I'm referring to a an investment or a model that moves us from the top of that risk spectrum not to the bottom, but into a balanced position somewhere in the middle where I can get a decent amount of height, right? That's That mm-hmm. represents potential growth. But I'm also not taking so much risk that if I fall off, I'm going to break my neck. That's the idea that I use to illustrate a balanced approach. Good, good. I think that's a good mind's eye picture there. So Okay, my church is now interested in having a investment brokerage account. How do I go about setting one up, Tim? Well, just like you do any other any other investment, you've got an application and and so forth. Uh, but there are additional pieces that are required to to identify both the entity creating that account and the individuals authorized to sign it. So. For a church, they need to demonstrate articles of incorporation or some uh, some document that that validates that this organization exists. It's not someone who is. Uh, so you go to a church called Branch Life. I, I could go and open up an account and say I'm Branch Life, and then I could start scalping checks that should have gone to the offering plate for you, and I'm now putting them into my account, and I control it. Mm. Well, how does the bank know that I'm not Branch Life? Right. Well, they would require me, they would require me to demonstrate or to prove to them through documentation mm-hmm. the fact that the church exists, that I'm an authorized signer, that I have the authority to act on behalf of the church. We have to protect the assets for that church and to make sure that the funds aren't being used for either money laundering or some other criminal purpose. So yes, there are documents you'll have to use to verify the identity of the church and to then verify who the authorized signers are and the identity of those authorized signers. That's well said. So how long does that process take? And I know it's a variable. It depends on how old the church is and how difficult it is to find the documents you need and potentially to update those documents so that it reflects who the authorized individuals are on those accounts. So so it could be if they have everything, could they have something up and running in a month or two? And if they don't have things, it could take a year plus. I mean, it just entirely depends on how difficult it is and how committed they are to getting what needs to have. No, well, well have. said. So if a church does have this type of account, 
what would be the ongoing responsibilities of those in the church or maybe the church leadership to manage it? What's their responsibilities? Well, so typically what a church would need to do is the first step is to create an investment policy statement. What is the philosophy for investing that they are using to to judge how well or poorly the investment is doing? Okay. So it talks about their their risk, talks about their time frame, talks about what they're allowed to invest in and who is responsible to monitor and adjust. So a church would need to delegate responsibility either to a committee or to an individual to work with the financial advisor to monitor and adjust the portfolio as needed. The financial advisor typically is the individual who will make recommendations and help with managing and servicing that account. The individual from the church is the person who would allow or 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 just be the the intermediary between the church and the advisor to make sure that what the church wants to happen is actually communicated and then acted on. So I know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask it anyways. Why should a church consider a Christian financial advisory firm over top of the one that's right down the street? Psalm 1:1 says that Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful. Where you get your advice matters. Do they understand the Christian worldview and the kinds of concerns that a Christian would you know, want to be aware of and, and to respect in their investment decisions? So working with a believer is probably going to be better suited than someone who does not you know, does not recognize Jesus Christ as Lord. Well said, well said. So Tim, talk to our listeners about these accounts that the church has and taxes. Does having this investment account mess with the church, ta- the church's tax exempt status, or if an or if there's any kind of reporting that they need to do for tax purposes? What? How does that all play in? Under current law, churches are tax-exempt organizations, which means that the the capital gains, dividends, and things like that are not taxable to the church. So they can have an investment account, and they would then have no taxes like you and I would have for having a joint investment account with our spouse. That's And that's a wonderful place for a church to be and to have those monies, yeah. to have that growth and not have to pay taxes yeah. on it. As far as does it violate uh, tax-exempt status, generally no. Of course, it doesn't violate tax-exempt status unless th- the investment itself grows to such a point where th- the purpose of the, the organization is no longer about some kind of ministerial duty or mission. It's about managing and growing money and, you know, doing something for investors. So as long as as long as the church doesn't become about investing, like that's not the purpose that they exist, it's not right. going to violate or and risk their tax exempt status. Yeah, that and that's wonderful. Now I'm going to put a little bit of a side kind of bar question here which I think ties in. The pew sitter, they're in the church, they're interested in giving to their church through a transfer of some appreciated stocks and or mutual funds to the church because they know the church has a brokerage account. Uh, 
because they want to give to their building fund. They want to give more generously in that way. How does someone do this, and how does a church benefit on that? An individual who has uh, shares of stock, they purchased it for $5. It happens to be worth $100. If they were to sell it today and then donate the cash to the church, they would receive a $95 per share capital gain tax that they would have to pay. So the tax isn't $95, but the the tax is on the $9,595 a share. That would be, if it's long-term capital gains, would be about 15%. Mm-hmm. Okay, there's, there's some caveats there based on your income and so forth. Sure. Um, but that could be a potentially large amount of tax that you would have to pay. Now, on the flip side, you'd be able to make a charitable donation for however much you, you donate, provided you itemize, which means you file Schedule A, which allows you to benefit from charitable deductions. Essentially, you would need, if you're married, you would need more than $25,000 worth of qualifying expenses on Schedule A. That would be medical expenses, tax payments, that'd be mortgage interest deduction and charitable contributions. You need more than $25,000 of those expenses before you get any benefit from itemizing. Okay. So Tim, you're talking about taxes and I didn't ask about taxes. (laughs) Get back to the topic. Okay. Well, here's the thing. If you take that stock and sell it and then donate the cash to the church, you get taxed, and then you also get an offsetting donation. If, however, you take those shares and donate those shares to the church through their- through a brokerage account. So yes. you go to your investor and you say, journal X number of shares over to the brokerage account of my church. You can talk to your church finance person. They can give you all of those details. And those funds go over to the church. The church can sell them. The church pays no tax, you pay no tax, but you get a full tax deduction for the value of the shares on the date of the transaction. That's wonderful. And that applies to stocks and it applies to mutual funds. One side note, if you buy stock or mutual fund at $50 a share and it's now worth $45 a share, you have what's called a loss. You never, ever, 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 ever want to donate shares in loss status. The reason is if you donate shares in a loss status, you can only take the deduction value, the donation value of those shares on the date of the transaction. You get no benefit for the loss. Mm -hmm. You would be, in this case, better off to sell those shares, take the long-term capital loss on your tax return, and then donate the shares. You get both benefits. Or not nice. the shares. I'm sorry. Donate the cash. Donate the cash. Yes. So interesting to statistic that we dug up. And I thought this kind of ties in with what we're talking about here right now is that donating stock to your church allows you to avoid the capital gain tax, as you just said, Tim. And this means that the church gets the full value of the stock, as you just said, and processing all the taxes and the fees and everything else potentially it could be an increase of up to 30 plus percent that your donation can be to the church because you're not having all those additional taxes, fees, expenses, et cetera. So it's a great way for someone, if a church has a brokerage account, to kind of do something like that. Uh, one little side note about the statistic, it's misleading. Um, 
an individual donates shares to a church because they want to donate shares to a church, Correct. they're rarely going to be grossing up that donation to counter-effect the uh, lack of taxes being paid. So that that benefit to you is is more relevant. It's a Correct. 37% benefit to you because of the impact, potential impact of savings on taxes and charitable donations. Correct, correct. So, Tim, what else should a church know about giving in this way to a church? And also, what else should a church know about having these brokerage and investment accounts? Yeah, I mean— have a long-term perspective. We recognize that Jesus Christ very well may come back today, but if he doesn't, if he tarries, um, I want you to be a wise steward of all of your resources, which means don't leave money sitting around doing absolutely nothing. If you have funds that you are not putting into ministry purposes and you have a long-term perspective, Make sure you're maintaining enough cash on hand for emergencies and as your buffer. Obviously, you have to have good fiscal discipline, but consider investing for the long term and trusting in the Lord with the results. Uh, Put money to work in programming. Put money to work for the long term. May the Lord bless us when he comes back and sees our stewardship of those resources. And we hear those great words. Well Well done, my good and faithful servant. And telling you, that's that's what we need to do. We need to be good stewards, even the local church. I, I've been in church long enough. I talk with a lot of pastors across the country, and the goal is to be a good steward, even of the cash flow that the church has had the pleasure to oversee. So we want to encourage you as a pastor, if you're listening, to process this, maybe share this episode with some of your church leaders if there's additional cash that's available and it's not needed for any any short-term purposes, consider talking to a good Christian financial counselor and uh, that they can actually talk you and walk you through what are some of the pieces that you can do with this so that as a church entity, you can steward the Lord's resources and blessing well. Tim, wrap us up here. Well, thank you for joining us today on this episode of the Stewardology Podcast, where you find out, should churches have investment accounts? It's a great question, Drew. I'm really glad you asked. Uh, So send us your questions. This is a question that we had. We want to know what questions you have. Go to stewardologypodcast.com forward slash idea to share your thoughts with us. I would also appreciate if you could share an idea, a concept, or an episode that you found particularly helpful for you and your family. Take advantage of your free stewardship review. If you're looking to figure out how you can become an even better steward of all of your assets, go to stewardologypodcast.com forward slash review and sign up for your free no obligation stewardship review. Consider giving us a review on your podcast catcher, whether it's Apple, Spotify, Amazon, Google, and as well on Facebook. We are now also on YouTube. Leave us a review. That will help us cut through the algorithm so more people can find out how to be an even better steward. All right. Until next time, take care. God bless. And I hope that one day you and I will hear the words. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Thank you for joining us on the Stewardology Podcast, where financial stewardship and theology meet. 
we'd like to help you take your next steps in biblical financial stewardship. First, subscribe in your podcast provider to get the newest episode delivered to you every week. Next, follow us on social media and visit our website at stewardologypodcast.com. There you can find our social media links and our entire episode archive. Remember, some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord 